Welcome to the Leaders Performance Podcast from the Leaders Performance Institute, the go-to hub for elite performance practitioners around the world. My name is James Emmett. I'm the Editorial Director here at Leaders, and this is our first performance podcast, Exciting Times. Um, It's a busy one uh, ahead of us and a noisy one uh, as well, as I basically had a microphone uh, wandering the halls behind the scenes at the Leaders Sports Performance Summit in New York at the beginning of June, a fantastic event, and I um, spoke to a number of delegates and speakers to bring a flavour of of what went on there. All the material from the event itself is available at leadersinsport.com. You can also find best practice case studies, original research, all sorts of stuff there. And of course, um, you can get access to to the intimate gatherings, masterclasses, large-scale summits that we hold here at Leaders through that portal too. Um, It really is a way to plug in to a vibrant and cutting-edge network in the performance world. So, what do we have ahead of us? Uh, A three-part podcast, uh, eight interviews, uh, kicking off with a couple of big dog general managers in the NFL. Rick Spielman from the Minnesota Vikings, um, a man with, um, well, a lot of jewellery, actually. I was struck by... Uh, the number of rings he was wearing on his fingers, and of course I delved into that in the interview. Also Thomas Dimitrov, general manager at the Atlanta Falcons, and uh, coincidentally both of those guys um, preparing to move their franchises into sparkling new venues in the uh, coming future. Um, then we move on, we've got a, um, a, an interview with Cameron McCormick, who is Jordan Spieth's coach, and yes, he was pressed on... Um, the 12th hole nightmare at Augusta for Jordan Spieth. Um, and interestingly, he, he, he discussed using that experience as a, a post-traumatic growth opportunity um, for Jordan. And actually, coming out of that, uh, Cameron's explaining that he was very impressed with the, re- the way that uh, Jordan was able to put such a good run together Um, having had such a traumatic time, uh, and actually hit a number of birdies uh, on 13 through 18. And uh, we touch on all sorts of other things, noise management. um, Essentially, Jordan Spieth is talking to himself throughout uh, any round of golf and coaching caddies. Then we've got uh, a brief conversation with Ed Hoffman, Chief Knowledge Officer at NASA. Um, uh, The interview there is basically asking him just what the heck is that? But Ed talks about uh, all sorts of interesting things, um, including uh, failure. Let's talk about failure and how NASA have a a sliding scale of whoopsies, pretty much, uh, from failure uh, at the top uh, through mishap. Uh, all the way to mistake. Uh, Anyway, very uh, interesting stuff. Um, Later on in the podcast, we will hear from Anson Dorrance, um, the veteran coach of the North Carolina Tar Heels women's soccer team, incredibly uh, successful college sports outfit. And uh, Anson's actually fascinating on the difference, um, as he sees it, between coaching um, groups of men and groups of women and how there are very distinct differences in how you should motivate groups of um, 
you know, single single sexes, I suppose. Um, and then finally, uh, as any good podcast should, uh, we'll end with a discussion on groins and groin injuries with Dr. Adam Weir, uh, sports medical physician at Aspatar, um, clearing up some of the confusion around terminology and, and delving into the groin injury. It's one of the big three injuries in soccer, so uh, it, it does deserve um, a little bit of discussion. Anyway, on with the show. Uh, Rick Spielman, General Manager, Minnesota Vikings. Hello there. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well, thank you very much. You've just come off stage. Uh, sensationally, you revealed that yesterday was the first time you've taken an Uber. Um, have you ever been on a podcast before? <laughs> yeah, I've been on a few podcasts, okay. but uh, Uber was my first experience yesterday, believe it or not. Okay. Um, you also uh, tried out a bit of German up there on stage and um, revealed that you have... Uh, signed a player from Germany, the first NFL team to, to hire to, direct from Germany, is that right? Yeah, we were the first NFL team to, to draft a player from Europe, and, the, uh, and this player, uh, Moritz, came from Germany uh, that has never played football in the United States. So uh, we did that because of his talent level, we felt, but I didn't realize the impact that it had after the fact on the promotion of even more on American football and how many um, emails that have been received on from the European side on how can I be the next Maritz Bullringer. Mm -hmm. uh, we're just talking uh, about talent ID and, and career paths and how you develop uh, people internally and, and retain people just up on stage. Are you scouting in Germany now? Are you? Are you? No, I don't think. <laughs> I don't know if that you know that is something I think eventually will happen in our business, just like it has in baseball and hockey and in the yeah. uh, in the basketball professional basketball leagues. I think where we're at, I don't know if American football. Um, I know your football over there is is the premier sport. Yeah. Um, but more and more kids are getting involved in American football, and I believe that's because we've been having. Uh, more games over in London. Uh, I know we're up to three regular season games now over there where our teams come over across and trying to create a fan base there. But I know there's a lot of untapped uh, potential from an athletic talent standpoint that maybe have not been exposed to American football and maybe they're not good enough to be a potential professional soccer player or football, European football player, but maybe they have the ability to be an American football player. Just up there on the stage, um, you were sitting alongside uh, Wes Wilcox, uh, general manager of the Atlanta Hawks, and Mike Preston from Deloitte, uh, chief talent officer with Croy uh, uh, Deloitte, I think. There's a lot of people with a lot of titles yeah, around yeah. here. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of talk about talent. Um, but it seemed to me that uh, Wes is obviously a very thoughtful guy and a, um, quite modern in his thinking, I think, um, uh, in terms of running a sports organization. Mike's coming from a, a huge corporate organization. They obviously have lots of newfangled ways of doing things as well. It seems to me that sport, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, but sport seems like a, a, a step behind the corporate world, maybe. It's like, it, it, do, or do you disagree? Do you think sport is willing to embrace new ideas? Just seems to me that, you know, you explain I think that. it's a totally different environment. There's a lot of parallels between business and sports, especially on the business side of it. But the talent that they're potentially going out to find, uh, we're looking probably for a different skill set. Um, and there's not a lot of 
people that are talented enough to play at our level. Uh, you, you have to, one, have the physical ability, one, in order to do it, and it's a very small, small percentage of even college players playing at the next level. So we're, we're working with extremely large number of, of uh, talent, but very minute on what we're going to bring in and draft into our organization. Um, so I think that's why we'll probably continue to do things the way we do it, because it's been successful. Um, but in the business world, you know, they have 77,000 employees, I think, at Deloitte, what he was talking about. I did, we have yeah, 96,000 yeah. a year. <laughs> yeah. That crazy. Yeah, I just got to find one intern, and like yeah. we, got, we had Brad, seven more players, so yeah, our yeah, roster, absolutely. that's it. Yeah. So there's a wide disparity on uh, numbers. We're also talking about, um, for your front office stuff in particular, sort of creating opportunities for them to grow, career path progression, retaining stuff, basically making it a place that they want to work in. You know, you, if they're good, you want to keep hold of them. For you, at the top of that organization, as a GM, and I know you've been a GM at other um, teams as well, what's, what's this career progression look like for you? Are you still growing as a, as a professional? I think you grow every day because um, I believe once you think you know it all and have all the answers, that's when people pass you by. And the competitor in you, the self-starter or self-motivator, uh, the drive, um, it's to ultimately win a championship and we and I have never been able to do that in my career and I will not me personally that drives and motivates me every day uh, to say that one day hopefully we can say we were the best in the world that year okay. um, yeah well that, I mean that's pretty much the ultimate story, <laughs> yeah. one final question I see uh, I've noticed this on your left hand yes. on your your pinky finger your little finger on your left what is that ring it's a rather remarkable just for for the listeners it's uh it's a crucifix it's a cross yep it's a finger rosary it's and a i'm finger catholic rosary. Ah. so i've had it for 20 years okay. and uh it's something that i uh, never take off and it, it always travels with me so through as good you, times and just, and as you've said that you have just taken it off so, yeah well yeah. i yeah. put it on another yeah. finger <laughs> But it's something that, no, I've, I've carried around uh, for 20 years. Okay. Rick Spielman, thank you very much indeed. Thanks for having me on. Thomas Dimitrov, GM Atlanta Falcons. Hello, thanks for being with us. Great to be here. Um, it, we've just come out of the session. Uh, Rick Spielman's in there. Where's your counterpart from the uh, Hawks in Atlanta? Um, it was all about talent ID, recruitment, career pathways, retaining um, staff that you value, I suppose. One of the things that struck me um, that Wes Wilcox said uh, was that uh, the importance of um, owning up to your mistakes by talking about your mistakes, every, you know, no one's perfect. That, um, in your leadership position, what's your take on, on being open about the mistakes that you've made? I'm extremely open about it. I talk about it all the time. I don't, I don't revisit the same mistakes all the time because I think there is a point, and I understand what Wes was saying, and he is right on the dial. The generation that we have working for us now is so into people being, you know, having more of a sort of semi-self-effacing approach, right? I mean, we're all there because we're uh, hopefully adept and confident and hard workers, and we, we deserve to be there, we believe. But we also know that it was it was a journey to get there. So we really want our uh, scouts or our other employees to realize that we've had a lot of slip-ups as well because we all learn from them, right? I think about five years worth of doing well. We never won a Super Bowl. And then all of a sudden we had three years where, again, I've been on the proverbial hot seat and I think about all the mistakes that led up to that. 
I mean, they're great learning experiences, right? So why not share them not only with yourself and those really close to you, but the rest of the organization? Mm -hmm. um, you're at the top of your game. You're a GM at a, a big football team. Um, talking about career paths and professional development, how, what's the journey for you now? I mean, how do you progress in your career? How do you grow as an individual and a professional? I think I've really focused now being in my ninth year, which is, is a, blows me away at times. At 49, I'm one of the, I think I'm the sixth tenured GM in this league. That is not about patting on the back. It's more about how quickly things turn around in this league and how it is a not-for-long league because you have to be successful. I think that in mind, I'm always looking to develop, and I realize even more so now that I get into my career, I realize just what I don't know and what I continue to need to learn, not only from football people, of course. Too often in the past, a lot of football people are quite myopic in their approach. We only want to talk to football people. Now I realize how wildly important it is to venture outside other sports and other businesses and, and to be able to share. So I think that's where my head is a lot, developing so many other aspects of my leadership ability to how I'm analyzing our use of biomechanics and sports science, our use of analytics and really breaking out, learning and then disseminating and sharing with the rest of our organization and empowering the rest of our organization to be on the front end of the curve, not flippantly spending, but very open-minded. Uh, finally, Falcons got a, an amazing new venue, com uh, venue coming online uh, this coming year, is that right? 2017? 17. 2017. Um, from a GM's perspective, someone who's interested in elite performance, you want the team to perform, what do you have to do to, to get the team to acclimatize to that new venue? What does well, that, it mean for you? Yeah, I think that venue is, is, is amazing and, and where we are as far as the evolution of that venue is amazing, right? You just see how quickly it goes up. And before you know it, we go from the Georgia Dome, which we've been playing in for, I think, 24 years, to now into a new dome next year, which is going to be cutting edge. It's going to be a world-renowned edifice. I think the focus is much more business right now. Football, we're still focused on where we are. We're focused on becoming a winner as much as possible so that we can provide the product that Arthur needs Arthur Blank needs to sell out that stadium, which is going to be done easily, of course. But there are so many nuances to a new stadium, new function, new potentially new practice facility. So um, the organization on the business side is really focused on the stadium. The football is still very focused on building the team and winning right now so that we can provide the right uh, setting for the new stadium. Thomas, you've got to run. Thanks very much for being with us. I appreciate you. Thanks, James. So, Cameron McCormick, uh, professional golf coach, golf coach to professional golfers. Sure. Uh, thank you very much for being with us. My pleasure. Um, you've just been there on stage, but I'm going to ask you to go there again. Okay. Uh, for Take my mind the back there. Yeah, yeah, you know what this is about. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Um, 12th hole at Augusta, final round, Jordan Spieth, what your, um, your main charge, I suppose, Jordan Spieth. Mm -hmm. um, he had a nightmare. Um, you know, quadruple bogey, put him out of the running for the, for, for the, the green jacket. Mm -hmm. um, how do you use, how do you coach after that situation has happened? How do you use that whole, that, that what happened to, to make him better for the future? So a, from a post-event um, standpoint, we want to, as a team, um, turn that and use that experience as a post-traumatic growth opportunity rather than to, um, for that to represent as baggage that a person's going to carry with them for a long, long time. Now, the memory of what happened most definitely will stay with you, but turning that into an opportunity to recognize 
what events led up to that that could, we could have changed that would then enhance our ability to change the events that might happen in the future is really um, the dialogue that we have and, and continue to have um, post that experience. Now, um, the events that transpired after hole number 12 were the events that we try and anchor to, meaning the bounce back ability, the tenacity he showed, and the presence of mind to recognize that what happened, happened in the past, even as recently as three minutes ago when he finished out on hole number 12, wasn't going to help him play better for the last six holes. And so um, a testament to his ability to bounce back and his ability to believe in um, um, that the skills he had were appropriate, were good enough to put himself back into contention. Uh, shone through on 13 through through 18, where he had so many opportunities to make birdies and actually give it a good run again. Mm -hmm. You talked on stage about Nori's management and about how um, Jordan is particularly good uh, at that skill, and I guess it's it's a skill that all individual athletes have to have, I suppose. How do you get in the zone, um, mm -hmm. uh, and what are you saying to yourself in your head as you're as you're performing? Um, is there possibly a sense that he's going to have to become even better Most at definitely. that? Most um, definitely. Now that possibly he will be, regardless of whether it's true or not, he will be known by in, in some quarters as a choker. Yeah, no, I don't think that he's going to be known as a choker unless he allows um, that dialogue, that narrative, to continue to be played out. And that's the signal to noise management that athletes um, and in other sports, uh, coaches that are exposed to the press, um, or even general managers that are exposed to the press have as their responsibility too, is um, how can we protect what the athlete most, most assuredly needs, which is a robust, a bulletproof self-image, um, a dialogue that's running in their head that is always, um, almost always positive, almost always um, objective to the reality of what they need to play their best. Um, so, I think ultimately that yes, he's going to need to get better at managing what's 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 traveling around in his head, the internal dialogue, we'll call it. But but yet only because he continues to find himself in contention so often that invariably those types of events they're going to happen. Mm. They happened to Arnold Palmer back in the '60s. It happened most recently to Rory McIlroy, and and the list goes on of the number of players that put some put themselves into contention in the world of golf. Um, that invariably you get caught on the wrong side of one of those events. So I don't think one event defines you, particularly not when you have a resume or a CV with eight PGA Tour victories, mm -hmm. more victories than any other player other than Horton Smith before the age of 23, and two of those victories in major championships. Mm. We're talking now at the beginning of June, obviously that happened in April. Um, as a, a coach-athlete relationship, have you, have, have you moved on from that? Have you processed it, digested it and, and, and moved on to somewhere else? I don't think we've talked about it since April 13th. Okay. Yeah. Will it be back on the agenda ahead of next year's Masters? It won't be on the agenda in terms of overt conversation. I'm sure it'll be swimming around somewhere mm -hmm. in everyone as part of the team's heads and you can't help but expect that you're going to get those questions. And so in, in advance of that, we're going, to, we're going to talk through what are the appropriately responsible responses that help us do what we need, and particularly Jordan do what he needs as an athlete, but also the authentic answers too, because mm -hmm. it's a reality, it happened. Mm -hmm. And to be vulnerable as an athlete is, is to also to be relatable and to humanize. Um, and, and Jordan is very authentic, um, very transparent. Uh, some may, some may say um, a little too transparent, um, 
but having said that, that's why a lot of his fan base appreciates him for who he is, because it's a window into the world of one of the best players in the world that most people can't fathom. We're talking, uh, just, just going back a little bit, we're talking about internal dialogues, and I, I suppose um, when you're a golfer, there are two real dialogues that you're having out on a course, um, and that's the one in your own head, and one with your caddy. Mm-hmm. Um, as a coach, do you coach the caddy as well? Absolutely. How does, yeah. that, how does that work? When you, so you, you see... You so, s- so we have a two-way communication channel, and in fact, it's a, it's a three-way communication channel, and oftentimes there's only two participants in that, uh, and that would be between Jordan and myself or Jordan and Michael or Michael and Jordan, but yet there's three voices in there. Mm. So if I'm talking to Michael, we're talking about Jordan and how to help Jordan. If Michael and Jordan are talking together, oftentimes the conversation between the two of them, particularly as it relates to presence of mind or a mindset or even, quite frankly, the technique that we're working on, is um, my voice as well. And then the, the reverse would go to when Jordan and I are talking about, we're talking about how the team were working cohesively in the context of competing. And so Michael is part of that conversation as well. Um, and oftentimes at events we get together and we talk collectively in terms of develop, developing tactics. How Michael's grown, Michael is riding shotgun, to, to use the driving expression, um, as Jordan tries to compete and as such he's, he's on board sports psychologist almost mm-hmm. um, which is di- probably diminishing the fact that the athlete themselves are their own sports psychologist which is a really important point of reference but Michael helps him through a lot and, and it gives him the reassurance that he needs and sometimes pulls the reins a little harder and sometimes gives him a little uh, whack on the bum with a with a whip mm-hmm. to get him moving in the right direction and oftentimes he doesn't need that oftentimes he's a um, a, a ship sailing with windy sails and he's just like yeah here we go let's have some fun um, so Michael's responsibilities exist beyond carrying a bag beyond giving him numbers they exist it, that's just the surface of it mm-hmm. they go far far deeper you've been Jordan's coach we've been coaching Jordan since he was 12 years old already that's quite a long relationship that you've had and I think it's um, probably quite uh, extraordinary in the world of individual sport to be a coach for so long um, of, of one person are you where or how do you guard against becoming wallpaper for, for, for Jordan? Define wallpaper, I'm not too sure of the question. Uh, so it's a, a comfortable thing, that, but not necessarily doing anything for him. Oh, anymore. gotcha. Yeah. Um, by always being at the forefront of recommendation and opportunity, here's where we need to get better. By providing value beyond um, here's what you need to do with your swing. Yeah. By, by being a Swiss Army knife yeah. in terms of resource versus okay. just the butter knife. Yeah. So yeah. I, I would say that probably does justice to how I see it. Yeah. And open to ideas, what have you got? Yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah. I've got it. Cameron McCormick, thank you very much indeed. Awesome, thanks James. Ed Hoffman, Chief Knowledge Officer, NASA. Uh, thank you very much for being with us. Great to be here. Uh, you must get asked this question a lot, but what exactly is a Chief Knowledge Officer? So we're looking at the issues around how, does, how do individuals and how do teams learn effectively and fast, how do they solve problems, uh, and how do they innovate and adapt. So it's really about performance, and virtually everything that happens at NASA is about the mission. Mm-hmm. It's about the projects and programs we have, whether it's the space station, or it's the James Webb Space Telescope, or it's a Mars mission. And so it's people coming together from different backgrounds, mm-hmm. and success usually comes down to how effectively do they collaborate, communicate, how quickly do they learn, and how, how open are we to exchange challenges and problems. So that's what I try to look for, is that we have an environment that's doing that. 
We're sitting down, uh, it's lunchtime uh, on day one of the Leader Sports Performance Summit here in New York. You are delivering an address at uh, 2.30, 2.35 I believe, yes. in just uh, an hour's time or so. Yep. Um, without giving the game away, Ed, what are you going to be talking about? So I was asked to talk about uh, the culture of, how do you establish an environment of learning? Okay. And so. Uh, if, if I was talking in a nutshell what leads to performance when people are, are working in a team, one is you want people engaged. You want them excited, you want them motivated, you want them feeling they're part of a special goal. And the other thing you want is uh, accelerated learning. Things are always changing, nothing goes as planned, so how do people learn fast? So I'll be talking about that, and so I'll be looking at the notion of learning uh, from some of the symptoms and some of the things that are important. For example, how do we deal with failure? Uh, do we learn from it? Do we get better? Do we talk about it or do we cover it up? So one of the things is, is that. A look at innovation. To me, innovation uh, can only happen with learning. And if innovation isn't taking place, then we're not learning. So what does innovation look like? What does it mean? And then uh, I'll be talking about the engagement uh, that we have as organizations, people, as managers, as leaders. Are we engaging our people in terms of dialogue, communications, collaborations, going towards the goal? Mm. So those, in, in, in the 30 minutes I have, is what I'll be talking about in terms of learning. Mm -hmm. And then all the methods, the approaches, the tools, to me, support different aspects of that. Um, the first session today, Wes Wilcox from the Atlanta Hawks talked about um, creating uh, an open environment. And to do that, the guy at the top has to um, but basically talk about mistakes that he's made, and I know that's something that, that, that you'll probably speak to in terms of failure, how do you address failure, how do you eradicate the chance of, of failure. How important is it to, to sort of own your mistakes? Oh, vital. Um, so you can look at maybe different levels of failure. A failure by itself, in my definition, is when something has not gone wrong. It could be some part of the project isn't working, it could be destructive, it could be you know what we've seen in terms of you know, other failed missions. Before uh, failure at a lesser level is a mishap, where something did not go as planned, but it has not yet affected the overall goal of the project. And at the basic level, it's mistakes that happen all the time. So what we find is, is that if a team is seeing and they're openly talking about what's not going right or what, what didn't go as planned and they reflect on it, they improve it, then then you cut down on, on some of the larger failures and, and you can innovate, you can get better. And if you have an environment, if you have a team, if you have an organization where it's not proper to talk about mistakes or failure, then you're doomed to failure. Mm -hmm. You're working with uh, a lot of engineers, a lot of, you know, super intelligent minds. They're literally rocket scientists. Um, how well, well let's just call them intelligent. If yeah. you call them super intelligent, then they're hard to live with. Well, th well, there you go. Maybe yeah. that's a sort of that's the point. Uh, hopefully, <laughs> I'm going to uh, get to how how yeah. do they? Your function is to um, change and evolve culture, I suppose, within an organisation. How do how do intelligent people? Uh, take on board messages from you. Yeah, I mean, I think all people are intelligent and have the ability to perform. So partly it's it's the right selection and having people in the right position you know, is what you want. Um, from the standpoint of how do people learn, they come in with skill, capability. You want that learning to keep taking place. Uh, they come in, uh, we want them to have networks or alliances. Like an event like this, um, of all the things that are happening in the great events, probably the most beneficial thing is the networking. I can talk to you, I can learn, and I can find solutions for the. Uh, and then ultimately it's, uh, it's having, you ha it's doing. 
it's practicing. It's by getting involved in the game or in the mission, and so you 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 get better. You can't be successful unless you're you have the assignments uh, to be successful. And and I guess all of that is enveloped in an attitude, an attitude of wanting to work with others, uh, working off of the relationships, and uh, and looking at from a, a standpoint of working for the larger team. Mm -hmm. So those are the things I, I would look at. You came along yesterday to uh, a sort of pre-event we, we run called the, the PA, where we gather together uh, the, the super top level of, of general managers and, right. and sporting directors from across the world of sport, around the world, to, to exchange ideas. You came in very generously, um, spoke to them, um, and were involved in the discussion, sort of a two-way thing. Did you come away from that? Have a, did you learn anything there? Yeah, no, well, you always, I think, learn. And so I think it's particularly good when you go to a different field. Um, Obviously, I spent a lot of time in aerospace or government or folks doing work that's, you know, technical, challenging, all that kind of stuff. So to, to go to sports, you, you see different perspectives. One of the things you learn is that we have the same challenges. You know, do you have sponsorship from the leadership? From, from you know, it could be an ownership, mm -hmm. uh, but do you have the support at the top? Um, how do you deal with challenges? Uh, again, the, the issue of failure, mistakes. Do you have an environment where people can find them? where they talk about them, where there's an open discussion and improvement, or is that not something that happens? Mm -hmm. uh, the, the discussions in terms of how do you get through the first year of being in a position? How do you, in other words, how do you learn when you have a lot of pressure? And um, the thing interesting to me in terms of the sports world is that the timeframes are dramatically compressed. You know, you can take over an organization and if it has a bad uh, few months, people are looking to fire you to make changes. Well, as if you're, you're doing an aerospace mission, you're, you're talking about years usually in terms of, of seeing how, how things are going. So there's a lot of tracking, but there's a lot of, a lot of correlation. But again, it comes down to, comes down to it's about the people. Uh, it's about building the relationships and trust and collaboration. Uh, it's about using tools and technologies that augment and empower people to work effectively together. And so I think that's what you see. You see, uh, you know, these incredible tools walking around here. You see tools for assessing uh, how people sleep. You see uh, tools for helping thought and focus. Uh, but that has to come in support of the people in terms of how do we collaborate, how do we build trust, and how do we work in a team setting. Um, fine, finally, two uh, space questions. Um, when are we humans going to be living on Mars? And uh, number two, what's your favorite space station? Uh, so in terms of Mars, I think that's good. I don't, I don't know when people will be living on Mars. Part of it is what's the strategy. Right now, the effort is sending machines, robots, to go up there. There's a lot of support for that because robots and technologies can do things, obviously. You, you know. But my guess is you're going to start seeing people going to Mars or being there uh, in about 30 years, mm -hmm. that kind of time frame. Now, that's, that's kind of what I, I that's not an official kind of okay. thing. In terms of my favorite space station, uh, I don't know. I've never lived on a space station. Uh, I'm in uh, Cape Canaveral, for example. Oh, uh, my! Uh, I, I work at NASA, so they're all. They will I love uh, all the centers. We got ten centers around the country. You love them all great equally. people. They're cool. Yeah. We work. Eighty percent of our mission are international collaborations. I was at the Canadian Space Agency last week, and uh, great. I mean, the cool thing, truthfully, about being in space is that 90% of what NASA does is with industries. So you're meeting cool people in different areas. 80% uh, is an international collaboration, so you're working with different partners. And although people don't think about it, 
uh, everything is done for science, and we're a, sci we're a science and research is at universities. So it's a, it's a broad community of really people dedicated and passionate and smart. And, and again, if we work well together, then it's successful and it's, and it's fun. So, but yeah, I mean, I, I like being all over the place. Mm -hmm. Ed Hoffman, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure, thank you. That was Cameron McCormick and Ed Hoffman. On to the final uh, stretch now, and ahead of us we have four interviews. Uh, up first, Professor Dara Harris, a friend of leaders. She's the medical director uh, at Washington University, and um, she's going to talk about the hot topic of sleep uh, and the uh, warm topic of faith. Um, moving on from Dara, we'll have uh, Darren Pelkey from Kaiser Corporation. Uh, Anson Dorrance from the North Carolina Tar Heels women's soccer team and Dr. Adam Weir from Aspatar to close us uh, out. Um, and then that'll be the end of the podcast um, and uh, hope that you have enjoyed it, found it useful. Um, do subscribe if you can to iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcast. The aim in the future is to bring you um, regular doses of the best performance content from our events, uh, from interviews, and our, our, from our global network in general. And I'll deliver that um, in audio to you. So, on with the show. Um, Dara Harris, uh, yes. medical director, Washington University, is that right? On the standardized patient program. So okay. the program that uses actors, so I teach communication skills and teamwork okay. to medical students. Okay. Uh, thank you very much for being with us. You've just come off stage um, talking to... Tobias Harris and Chantel Riley. Chantel Riley about how they get in the zone to perform night after night, day after day. Yes. How do you get in the zone? Oh, that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> so I have what they call a high need for cognition, meaning I like to think things through. So I do actually a lot of the similar stuff to them. I'm careful about you know, taking care of myself, but I also set up kind of like a mental diet of fun things that I'm thinking about. I always have a notebook by my bed so that when I come up with an idea or I see a connection I didn't see during the day, then I can write it down or I can take notes for the next mm -hmm. talk. So I do that. And then I box. Um, yeah, okay. Well, wow. that, that shone through in the talk there. You were, you were keen to express that. And I'm going to stick clear of you, actually. No, no, yeah. never, never, never unprovoked. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, what we heard on stage, sleep's obviously very important for yes. high-performance athletes, guys who are you know, competing physically, mm -hmm. um, and also for Chantel, yes. you know, she has to be, mm -hmm. she have a lot, of, a lot of energy. But if you're using your mind, if, you, if really your performance Absolutely. muscle is your mind, how do you... It's just as critical. So a lot of the learning consolidation we now know happens during sleep. Mm -hmm. So it's just as important for all of us, really, to recharge and to do it well. And a lot of people neglect it because we like the intensity and the push, mm -hmm. but the recovery is every bit as important. And good sleep is when you're gonna lay down those memories, get them consolidated, and really be able to use language and, and use the thoughts in a more productive way. It's difficult to think about sleep and memory without using sort of computer terminology now. Yes. It's like it's like you're filing all those memories in a big database. Yes. Yeah. Which is weird that that's kind of yeah. Anyway. But we're trying to get our mind around um, a phenomenon that we don't have direct access to, right? Yeah. So we're out and sleep, so we have to use all this technology to understand what's happening. Mm. Um, going back to your uh, thought-provoking discussion with the, uh, the two stars earlier, yeah. um, 
what struck me was that both of them used their faith. Both of them um, yes. mentioned that they grew up in Christian households. Their their belief in God is important to them, yes. um, mainly to keep themselves grounded. I think that to yes. to know that they are not the be all and end all. Yes, which it's, isn't that a complex task? Totally. Well, I was going to ask you, mm. coming from you know a medical background, mm. I suppose. I guess faith in something is important, but the idea of having faith in God doesn't necessarily tally with See, science. I, it's know? so funny. I actually, I, I feel like most of the really, most of my friends, we can all point to a moment when we really picked faith up again, where dealing with human suffering and some of the incredible things that happened to our patients it really was a very important point for me too to actually believe in something bigger, to have the sense that if you leave my office, you're still being cared for, because otherwise it's very hard to turn off the doctor piece. So for me, faith is a huge part of actually staying compassionate and staying able to care for people with all the stuff that we see. Are you researching anything at the moment? Yes. Yeah, got so a project on the go? Yeah, so my research is in teamwork okay. and um, interprofessional teams. So we take a simulation with physical therapy, occupational therapy, nursing, pharmacy, and medicine. Mm -hmm. And we're starting to look at the actual behaviors of teamwork. So for a long time, everybody has, you know, you go through a team thing and then afterwards you say what you think. But it doesn't really tell you what you do in the room. Mm -hmm. So we're using um, software and a style that's been used with you know, elite um, performing teams and military to actually identify behaviors that interprofessional teams use that are associated with team satisfaction and patient satisfaction. Okay, yeah. and what, does this project have an end goal, an end date? Or? Yeah, so we're, we're working on um, finishing up the paper now. What we really found that's been fascinating is the behaviors that correlate with being a happy teammate aren't the same ones as a happy patient. Okay. So we're talking about in the medical system that we're gonna reward for patient satisfaction, but we may not be reinforcing the same behaviors when we're a team. And so it's gonna be, an, we're hoping to add some complexity to the discussion about what really, what behaviors make happy teammates and patients. Darren House, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Oh, my name is Darren Pelkey. I'm the Vice President of uh, Sales in North America for Kaiser Corporation. Kaiser Corporation, a very generous sponsor of the event here, the Leaders uh, Performance Summit. Thank you very much indeed for that. Let's find out what Kaiser's all about. Ah, well, Kaiser's been around since the 70s. It's a family-owned business, still privately held. Um, Basically, we do lots of things, but the reason we're at, uh, leaders is that we do a lot in the world of performance. So our strength equipment is pneumatically based, and uh, essentially we can look at power um, safely and measure it. And uh, that's kind of the interest of this group of people here is not just looking at the force that an athlete produces or is able to produce, but looking at that force and the speed that they, they're able to do it at. Um, that combination of, of force and speed is power. So this group of people in particular measure that, want to quantify it, um, and in the professional world, or not even in the professional world, they it's just a, a new measurement that's becoming more and more popular with everybody. How do you make, how do you make that measurement? Presumably you've been around, or the, the company's been around since the 70s, presumably technology has evolved and you're now doing things differently? Well, yeah, um, we were always able to train at speed because we've always been pneumatic. So our resistance system has been pneumatic. Technology, what it's allowed us to do is basically take, uh, it, I mean, it, it, basically the technology 
that's out there now allows us to display it and display it in a, in a system that's open to everybody. Technology is less expensive for everything now. Sure. So, so even though we were in performance in our early days, it's the, now the explosion has basically happened because everybody can measure it, quantify it, display it, show it to their players, and then analyze it as well. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the questions that we're asking people here is sort of philosophical one. Um, obviously, we're talking about performance in general, elite performance. What does performance mean for you? What's your definition of performance? Oh. And I'm going to just fill some time here once you think about the answer. <laughs> okay. Just, yeah. Well, I think I've answered this before, and it depends on the audience. I think performance is different for different people. I think high-end performance, I used to think that when per a person said performance, it was always related to an athletic endeavor, but that's not by any means what I think anymore. I, it still is there, but I think the reality is performance, if you're, you know, if you're an older adult, might be getting up off the couch or going up the stairs mm -hmm. and, and maintaining that performance. Um, and for me, it's just being able to do the things that you want to do and achieve the goals that you want to achieve at a higher level. Mm. And <clears throat> it really depends on where you start from. If you're improving, then that's improving your performance. Yeah, I think getting up from the couch is a good place for us all to be starting <laughs> from. Um, have you had good, good conversations since you've been here? Have you, you, you met some good people? Oh yeah, I mean, I've been to a number of your events and uh, it's always great. It's a great environment to meet people and to talk and. Uh, obviously build relationships and I think that you know that's the better part of getting coming to these events is building relationships and with people that I don't normally see mm -hmm. you know I we talk a lot to um, strength and conditioning coaches which there are people here in that capacity but you know sports psychologists managers so building those relationships is great mm -hmm. so that's brilliant perfect Darren Palke, Kaiser Cormac Corporation thank you very much indeed you're very welcome so, Anson Dorrance, Dorrance, Dorrance? Dorrance, yeah. Anson Dorrance, head coach, North Carolina Tar Heels women's soccer team. Uh, very experienced individual. You've just come off stage. Um, something that struck me uh, that you were talking about up there, um, the difference uh, between coaching men's teams and coaching women's teams and, and, and you know, some quite striking differences. Could you just elaborate on, on what you were saying? Well, um you know, as I mentioned on stage, we could speak all day about the differences. Uh, uh, for me, it was a question of adapting to my culture. I was used to, obviously, uh, coaching men when I was given a women's team. And so uh, I was trying to coach the, the teams exactly the same because the feminist literature uh, back when I was in school in the early 70s were telling us that there was no differences between men and women, only environmental influences that pushed men and women in different directions. And so I thought this was great. So, uh, you know, I planned one practice session. Uh, uh, the men trained from two to four, women four to six. And so I was thinking this is great. They're very efficient. If, um, if they're exactly the same, then, you know, it's going to be simple. And then, of course, it was, you know, one disastrous, you know, moment after another. And I realized that, uh, you know, men and women were not the same and had to be coached differently and, and not, you know, radically differently in all areas because obviously we have more things in common than we have differences but in some very important areas uh, um, uh, the women were a, a different a, a coaching challenge for me and honestly I had to uh, adapt to become uh, uh, better at it uh, because some of the stuff I was doing just wasn't working at first. Mm. 
well, traditionally women are from Venus and men are from Mars. That's the, <laughs> um, do you think, obviously there, there, there's a lot of stuff in there about um, motivating people in front of their peers and, and talking to people in groups. Um, and you were explaining, you know, if you single out a player for praise in a men's team, that's going to go down well probably and it's going to motivate the other players to, to get some of that praise for themselves as well. Conversely, in a women's team, you do that and then everyone's going to hate each other and you and it's just not going to go down well at all. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different uh, things I learned. Yeah, a public praise uh, for men is something they just love to get and uh, there's not a huge jealousy factor when you praise a, a male publicly and and what I learned uh, is that uh, everyone in the room hates you if you praise a, a young woman publicly because you're thinking you're doing her an enormous favor by singling her out in front of the group, but then the group excoriates her because of, uh, you've, you've picked her out. And then, of course, she's embarrassed because she knows what her teammates are thinking. And then the teammates also obviously are dying to get a similar sort of support from you. I mean, one of the finest things you can do for an extraordinary performance uh, from one of your young women isn't to you know, gather the girls around and point to her and said, oh my gosh, Mary, today you were fantastic. No, uh, that doesn't work at all. What works really is uh, the uh, young woman wants to know that you value her. So you do have to go out of your way at every opportunity to express your value for every uh, young woman you're leading. And one of the best things uh, I've ever done is after a great performance, uh, you know, as she's walking off the field, just walk alongside her and just say, you know what, and this is in a voice only she can hear, you know what, you were awesome today because what the uh, what the young woman wants from you is she wants to know that uh, somehow that she's special in your eyes and so she doesn't need uh, you know you to you know glorify her in front of the group uh, she needs to know that she's got some special qualities that you admire so a personal note for uh, being an extraordinary person uh, goes a million miles uh, text messaging uh, uh, about you know how uh, wonderful they are in all the different ways and and what you're basically doing is you're trying to develop a relationship of, of trust with them. Uh, for a woman to, to follow you and to be coached by you effectively, she has to absolutely trust you. And for her to trust you, she's got to believe uh, that uh, she has uh, an individual and personal relationship with you. That you're not just another chess piece on the board, you know, like... Um, the old chess pieces, the queen is worth nine, the rooks are fives, the, mm. you know, the knights and the bishops are worth three, the pawns are worth one. They're all queens. Right, absolutely. And mm. so she has to feel like uh, uh, she has a huge value uh, and uh, she doesn't need everyone else to know the way you value her. Uh, so again, this public praise thing uh, mm. I learned early was just a huge mistake uh, and I certainly changed it. And that's just one of... Uh, you know, a thousand different things that uh, you learn uh, uh, when you're leading uh, women after uh, uh, coaching and leading men. Uh, and uh, that's just a, that's a small piece of and part of it, but obviously uh, things that I've learned. I know you've got a head off, Hanson, so one very quick final question. Um, it seems to me that uh, the lessons that you've learned over your career teaching, uh, coaching men and coaching women, um, they're you teach teams, you're a soccer coach, um, and soccer is obviously a team sport. Do you think that your mindset would change or would have changed if you were teaching an individual sport? So, you know, you're talking about the importance of a woman feeling valued for herself individually. Do you think, I mean, it's hypothetical, but if you were teaching tennis or golf, for example, coaching? I think it would drill even deeper into what I'm talking about, <clears throat> about this relationship of trust between you and the player. Um, 
And obviously, since you're going to be spending more one-on-one -on -one time uh, with your uh, individual athlete, I think uh, this relationship is going to grow even faster uh, and uh, be accelerated or exacerbated uh, based on how you uh, manage uh, this relationship and how you win and keep the trust even more uh, exponentially than when you're doing it with a team. So I think it's actually accelerated in the individual sport because you've got more time with them individually and personally. In fact, this is sort of an interesting discussion because uh, <clears throat> a lot of times I give, uh, I have a, actually a 35 to 45 minute presentation on uh, differences in uh, coaching men and women, differences in leading men and women. <clears throat> and if I make this in a, in a corporate culture, the question I get right after in the Q&A is, well, what do you do when you're leading mixed groups? And honestly, I don't have a really good answer for it. I know how, it, how I would lead a man. I know how I would lead a woman. But uh, I don't know what I would do in mixed groups except to divide them in the way I would lead them from a personal perspective. And so I was speaking out in uh, San Diego recently uh, for a collection of uh, U.S. Olympic coaches. And they had the whole gamut of coaching, I think, field hockey coaches to uh, figure skating coaches. Uh, to There was a, a women's uh, soccer coach in there that is actually coaching some of my uh, college kids. And I was intrigued because I connected with uh, a pairs figure skating coach because he's got a male uh, skater and a female skater because they skate together. <clears throat> and what I'm really curious about right now in speaking with him is how he leads the pair. Because obviously this is the perfect uh, experiment to answer these questions that I've struggled to answer in, in corporate America about how you lead both groups. But what I tell everyone, and this is genuine, I, and I, I absolutely believe this, <clears throat> there are great leaders that don't really need any advice. Uh, what all of us know and accept is that everyone's different. Everyone has to be led differently. Obviously I've got some cliches to attach to a gender. It doesn't mean the entire gender responds this way, just like uh, uh, there are exceptions uh, to any rule you would make. <clears throat> but what I'm curious about is uh, how he manages them both, how he talks to both of them, and then how he talks to each one individually. So what I want to hear from him, <clears throat> and I'm hoping I can develop a close relationship with him and study him a bit, I want to see if his coaching voice for the pair is different than his coaching voice for the male and it's different from his coaching voice for the female. So he has three individual voices, basically. That's what I'm wondering. I'm wondering. I don't know, because um, uh, I've never coached a, a mixed team. Uh, I've never led a mixed team. I've either coached a men's team yeah. or a women's team. So you've got two voices. Um, right. Yeah. I've got two voices and two leadership personas. And obviously, even within that, within the 30-player team I'm coaching at UNC, I've got 30 different voices for the 30 yeah. female players. And so I, I just want you to know, even within that, uh, we all have to have a different leadership voice. But the great leaders uh, can sense uh, with their emotional intelligence, um, you know, what radar to follow uh, and who the heck knows whether they're even conscious of how they're reacting. Yeah. Uh, but these natural leaders uh, don't need any advice. Uh, obviously, corporate America, they want an answer. I'm going to try to figure it out. Uh, and I'm, gonna, I'm hoping this... Uh, uh, this pair's uh, figure skating coach is going to help me so get there because right now, honestly, the I'm not the there yet. The coach? Honestly, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, uh, but he's obviously the Olympic yeah. uh, coach, so this yeah. guy's got a clue.
And so well, I'm, I'm looking forward to learning from it. doesn't them. matter that much, though, does it, Anson? Because we'll soon have robots to replace all the coaches. <laughs> Anson Dorrance, thank you very much indeed. Hey, my pleasure. Cheers. Dr. Adam Weir, uh, sports medical physician, Aspatar. Welcome along. Thank you very much for being here. Yeah, thanks very much for the invitation and nice to be uh, talking groins with you today. Well, indeed. Um, you've just come off stage where you have been uh, doing a hard-hitting session on uh, groins. The problems of uh, groin injuries, um, difficulty in uh, diagnosing them properly, I suppose, and the terminology attached to that. Give us a flavor of what went on up, uh, up there on stage. Well, my, myself, I enjoyed the, the session. I'm glad to, to hear that you felt that it was hard hitting, although it's never nice to be hit hard in the groin. No. Um, the session, we, we touched on a few topics. The first one was about some of the confusion surrounding terminology and the work that we've been doing at Aspatar to try and iron that out. So we had an international consensus meeting on the, the terminology used to diagnose and classify athletes with groin pain. So basically encouraging the, the audience to consider adopting this new terminology to avoid confusion. Uh, we discussed conservative treatment. So the best way of rehabbing athletes and the role of prevention and monitoring. Mm -hmm. uh, so ways uh, of perhaps looking at strength ratios of the various groin muscles um, and monitoring the strength during a season to be able to intervene and try and prevent athletes getting injured. And then in the worst case, if they did get injured, strategies for rehabilitation. And in the even worse case, uh, we discussed the, the possible surgeries and pros and cons of various surgical approaches with Dr. Ulrika Mushuek, a renowned groin surgeon, giving us her 20 odd years of experience there. So, so it, you don't do yourself down as well. You've got uh, a depth of groin experience too. Um, you, you did a PhD in sports groin injuries, is that right? Yes. A uh, athletic I, groin injuries? Yeah. In uh, 2011, I defended my thesis at the University of Utrecht in Holland, yeah. um, having done a randomized trial about two different treatment options for athletes with adductor-related groin pain. Okay. Um, and could you give us an idea of just how common groin injuries are in, in sport? Well, I suppose different sports, different injuries, but let's take soccer. Uh, how common is a groin injury now? For soccer, it's, it's one of what they call the big three. So if you look at the number of days lost either to training or to matches, groins up there in the top three. So you've got knee injuries, hamstring injuries and groin injuries. So it's, it's not to be underestimated. And I think of all the injuries when you compare it to the others, we know the least about groin. Okay, uh, and are we taking substantive steps towards having, I, I know a few years ago, I guess in the, the popular press, there, there seemed to be a breakthrough in terms of knee injuries. Now, athletes that would previously have had to retire after getting an ACL or, or something like that, they could go away, have surgery, come back, almost as if they're good as new. Are we at a stage, are we at a breakthrough moment with groin injuries and the treatment of those? I don't think we're there yet, in all honesty. I'd love to say yes to that one, but if you look globally, the number of research teams and people innovating in terms of knee injuries, the groin doesn't compare. There's a few centers around the world, but the, the amount of manpower being thrown at this is substantially less. Um, and so progress is, I think, slower, mm -hmm. in okay. all honesty. Yeah. Yeah. All right. 
Um, how long have you worked for Aspatar? You just, I, I know you, you, yeah, I mean, you've got a very peculiar accent, if you don't mind me saying. It's a little bit of English, a little bit of Dutch, a yeah. little bit of Qatari in there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. No, I'm not going to deny the accent thing. No, I, I was recruited at the end of 2012 and moved out there January 2013 and had two and a half fantastic years, after which we've now moved back to Holland with the family. But I visit Aspatar every four to six weeks as a visiting professional. Mm-hmm. Um, and work every day on Aspatar matters from home. Yeah. Give us an idea of what Aspatar is. Yeah, Aspatar, it's, it's a challenge to describe that in words if you've never been there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, a fantastic facility um, in the middle of the sports zone, the Aspire sports zone, a, a state-of-the-art hospital that even in the time that I was there has tripled in size. Uh, so it's had two expansions, east and west. It's an international place. There are people from more than 60 countries working in Aspatar. Um, and everywhere you turn, you meet world experts in their field. So you'll meet the best sports scientists, the best physiotherapists, the best sports psychologists, radiologists, you name it, all the different sub-disciplines. They've been very successful, I think, at recruiting real world leaders in their field to want to come and work there, which makes it a, a hugely invigorating place to work. Yeah. And if I do my groin wandering the halls here at the Time Center, I should just get a, a, a ticket to Qatar and, uh, and get it sorted there. I'm biased, of course, yeah. but I'd, <laughs> I'm bound to say yes to that. And we are seeing increasing numbers of people starting to come from overseas. I mean, the, the, that's one of the, I guess, reasons to be here and showcase our knowledge and expertise here is to try and encourage overseas referrals and the hospital has been really keen to receive um, professional players from multiple sports from around the world so over the last few years we've had people from the the EPL from the top French division uh, players from Spain for other injuries NBA players have started to to find Aspatar so it's being successful at getting increasingly on the international map I think yeah Dr. Adam Weir, uh, here today, groin tomorrow. Thanks very much for being with us. Thank you, pleasure.